Uh, turn in your Bibles to, we're going to go back now a couple of weeks here. We're going to touch base again in First in Peter chapter 2. We're nearing the end of that chapter. We're not going to quite get there. I thought we would, but uh, we're going to have to stall here a couple of verses from the end of the chapter. So First Peter chapter 2, I am going to read to the end of the chapter, but we're going to be concentrating mainly on three verses uh, so if you've got your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, where we left off two weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, I can't remember. And if you'd stand, please, once you find it in your Bibles, and we will read the Word of God together. So beginning in verse 21 through verse 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. So the context here, taking us back, is the ill treatment of in the slaves and masters, employer-employee relationship here. That was the first part of the context. Now I think he begins to broaden it to overall persecution as a, Christmas, as a Christian, suffering as a Christian who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. A reference from Isaiah 53, which carries on to the next verse, 23. And while being reviled or abused, he did not revile or abuse in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And so next Sunday, we'll look more closely at verses 24 and 25. You may be seated. Let's ask for God's help together as we dig deeper into his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for... 2023, we look forward to a brand new year before us. And Lord, I just pray that each one of us would have a deeper experience of what it means to know the Lord Jesus Christ this year, that we would become even greater students of your word, and that you would help us to understand and to apply your truth. We ask that right now this morning that your Holy Spirit would reveal your truth to us, would encourage us with it, would challenge us with it, would change us with your truth. Please be our teacher this morning. We pray in the name of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, together. Amen. Well, not a marquee or a banner subject that you would probably want to display as come this Sunday we are going to talk about suffering. Suffering. But I want you to think about that word this morning. It's in our text. It's in multiple verses. It's, it's covered all over in the New Testament. What does it mean when I say the word suffering? What are you thinking of when I say the word suffering? What does it look like? Now, our minds may bring up images, things like people battered by war or pulled off a makeshift migrant boat or trapped beneath 
earthquake, tornado, or hurricane rubble, a malnourished African orphan, weeping relatives embracing after a devastating fire. These are obviously very legitimate lifted from the headlines today. These are, these are common images that can quickly come to our mind, but really for the vast majority of us, if not all of us in this room, are also somewhat distant, somewhat removed, a little one-dimensional. I mean, after all, I doubt that any of us spent Christmas Day hastily stringing up lights next to a muddy tank, feasting on dehydrated turkey with smoke plumes rising in the distance. That's far, far away from our real day-in and day-out world. Well, then that would bring up the question, what then is our personal experience of suffering? When we think of suffering in a personal way, what does that look like? Serious illness, financial anxiety, a broken relationship, a bout of, of devastating depression, loss, emotional pain. Now, these things are very close to home. And this list, if we were to do a survey in this room this morning, would certainly grow and grow. But this morning, we're going to consider yet another kind of suffering. This one, unfortunately, is rarely talked about. It's rarely taken very seriously. I think we could even say it's rarely actually thought through in expanding the bridge from the theoretical to real-life experience. This suffering is suffering, according to Scripture, that solely comes about. Now, I said solely comes about because of our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ and our lifestyle decisions that come about because of that identification. I want you to keep a finger in 1 Peter chapter 2, but I want you to turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I just want you to home in on a, on a verse there that we've looked at many times over the years. But there it is once again. And we're going to see how that relates to what we're going to look at in 1 Peter chapter 2. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, drift down to, there's so much good stuff here, but drift down to verse 12. That's all. We're going to put the spotlight on verse 12. And let's read it slowly together. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you get that? Read it again if you need to. And indeed, all desire who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. I would hope that's all of us in this room. If we've truly been born again, we know Christ, we're, we're seeking Christ, we want to walk with Christ. In the days that we have left on this earth, we would desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Well, then he tells us, then something's going to happen to you. It doesn't end there. There's not a period. You will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. See, Paul and Peter are not suggesting if. Suffering because of Christ is a bygone conclusion. 
Peter's main concern here is our reaction to that which is a bygone conclusion. How do we react upon the receiving suffering? Upon immediate reflection, we could probably whittle it down to two primary natural responses. The first one being avoidance. Avoidance. The tendency as a believer to rather blend in than rock the boat. To tone things down somewhat. To maybe compromise a little so it's not so rough. To file off those rough edges and, and not take the truth, well, too seriously. After all, we don't need to be fanatical about it. The second primary response that might come naturally to us is retaliation. So we take a fighting, defensive, get-back posture that, that really shines the light on my particular personal rights. It's the kind of get-out-of-my-business, get-out-of-my-face posture. So we have avoidance and we have retaliation. But biblically, neither reflect Christ. And Peter clearly says that we are, in verse 21, to what? Follow in his steps. He is our perfect example. In fact, in the, in the original language, that word means, we looked at this two weeks ago, a model of handwriting to be traced over exactly by a student. That's what example means. Well, then we need to ask the question, how did our Lord Jesus Christ, our example, the one that we are to follow in his steps, how did he deal with suffering? What was his reaction to suffering? What was his response to suffering? So what would it look like personally for us then to actually follow what Jesus did? Well, let's see how he stands up to our natural responses. So we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at two things in relation to avoidance and retaliation. Number one, Jesus didn't avoid situations and or decisions that would stir up opposition. Jesus did not avoid situations and or decisions that would stir up opposition. Look back at verses 20 and 21. He says, for what credit is there? You sin and are harshly treated. You endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now, there's an interesting phrase there. He says, to do what is right. Well, what does that mean? That's an important question to ask today. How do we define what right means? Well, I'm going to go back to 2 Corinthians, the very end of that uh, letter by Paul, to the 13th chapter, and I just want you to consider a couple of verses. Now, we pray to God, this is verse 7, that you do no wrong, nor that we ourselves may appear approved, that you may do what is 
right, even though we should appear unapproved. Verse 8, for we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. So there's be a connection made between those two verses that doing what is right is based upon the truth. Well, what is the truth? We turn back to Jesus' own words in John chapter 17, and he says this in verse 17, his prayer to the Father on behalf of his disciples and all of the disciples to come Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. So it's important for us to understand that truth here is not arbitrary. Truth here is not fluid. It doesn't change because cultural norms shift. It doesn't have to be updated. It doesn't have to receive some 2024 makeover. Look at chapter 1 in 1 Peter, verses 24 and 25. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides, how long? Forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. The word of the Lord abides forever. I want you to think about that for a moment. When I was growing up, there was a, a cave in our little town that we used to love to go to up on top of a hill. We would ride our bikes there when we were little kids, and we would make the long trek up the side of the hill, and there were these kind of secret pathways that would go always to this cave. You could see it from the streets. I grew up in Southern California, so it wasn't out in some wilderness area. But here in the, on the edge of the city, between three cities, was a huge section of land that at that time was solely owned by Standard Oil Company. And so they used it as a storage facility, but they also did different research and everything. And it, and it was somewhat of a wilderness area locked in the middle of the city. And at the top of one of those hills was this awesome, incredible cave. And you can imagine for, for little boys on bicycles, and at that time we could roam around the city. We weren't worried about all the bad people. I'm sure they were out there, but nothing ever came across our path, and, and so we enjoyed those many treks up there. Now, over the years, housing developments grew up around that cave. A golf course was built around that cave. Two shopping centers came in and were built around that cave. Even a small museum and a number of baseball diamonds were built up at the base of that cave. But guess what? I was down in Southern California many times last year. That cave is still there. The cave is still there. Some things just last. Now, no matter what is being built up around the Word of God, culture is building all kinds of things around the Word of God. 
hoping to silence it, hoping to smother it out, hoping to shout louder and be flashier than the Word of God and grab our attention and grab our opinions and our worldview. But guess what? You can bank on it. Scripture says it. Peter says it in chapter 1. The Word of the Lord abides forever. It will always be there. to reevaluate it because society has grown up around it is in reality ultimately to question God's ability to get it right the first time. Ultimately to question his holiness. Think about this just as an example. Who defines morality? Really think about it. It's a hot issue today, right? There's a lot we could tuck under that word morality. But who defines morality? Do you? Do your peers, whatever is currently acceptable in culture, a group of cool Christians, or our God? Jesus said himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Following in his steps, we look at him, he didn't back down, he didn't compromise, he didn't soft sell, he didn't leave hard stuff out so that people would accept him more. Did he? Obeying the word and living right will invite opposition. It will. Second Timothy Chapter 3, verse 12 guarantees that. But Peter says, for this you have been called. Called. Don't take that phrase lightly. This is a purpose statement. This is a destination definition. We can't shrug it off without consequences. Jesus clearly told Peter and his other disciples, gathered at what we traditionally call the Last Supper, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Are we following in his steps? Let's look secondly at Jesus' response. Did he retaliate? Did he resort to retaliation? Jesus didn't aggravate situations by asserting his right to retaliate. Jesus did not aggravate situations by asserting, asserting his right to retaliate. Follow in his steps, verse 21, is followed by what kind of description of Jesus? Who committed no sin nor deceit was found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he ordered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What's the clear picture here? What picture do you get of Jesus Christ in verses 22 and 23 put there precisely to define what it means to follow in his steps? Was he reviled? Was he abused verbally is what that word literally means? Yes. 
Did he have to suffer? Was he persecuted? The scriptures make it clear, yes. And how did he respond? Don't we find that here too? It says very clearly, without sin. It says very clearly there was no deceit. There was no reviling in return. There were no threats, no get back. No, you'll hear from my lawyer. No, you'll pay for this. Why? Couldn't he have done something? Couldn't he have ordered some instantaneous lightning bolts? Couldn't he have, have opened the ground and with a giant crack and suddenly... Swallowed people up. Couldn't he bring down fire from heaven? Couldn't he, he order heavenly drones? Instantaneous, gone, fried, swallowed up. Super Jesus. Now try that again. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Why didn't it happen? It's a good question. The verse tells us. Verse 23 tells us, but kept entrusting himself, and that verb means over and over and over again. In other words, it was consistent to him who judges righteously. This is our example. This is all linked back to example and following in his steps. Really believing, not just in theory, that our sovereign God can handle our situation in his way best, in his timing best. Wanting to get back is really denying God's place and ability and elevating ourselves in a foolish, dangerous way. But we rarely talk about this. Why? Listen to what... Bible teacher Charles Swindoll has to say, I like his comment on this. Our world bombards us with messages that urge us to stand up for our personal rights. We're quick to defend ourselves when we think somebody steps on our toes, crosses the line, ignores boundaries, or intrudes on our personal domain. We can find a lawyer's phone number quicker than a passage of scripture calling us to endure hardship. Stop and think, when was the last time you took it on the chin for the cause of Christ? When did you last surrender your rights to the deliberate purpose of following Christ's example? How rare that is, especially in our fight back, get even culture. Peter's message to that fledgling first century church can feel like a punch in the stomach of the 21st century church. We simply can't downplay the significance of his call to patiently endure the intolerance, prejudice, and unjust treatment that comes with being a follower of Christ. Enduring with patience is not natural. That's why our godless culture celebrates retaliation. Stand up for yourself. Don't be pushed around. Make them pay. What does that accomplish? As Christians, we, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have the, the gift of God's own revelation to us. 
We have his, his wisdom. We have his abiding power within us. We have the ability to see the unseen. It's called discernment. How do we utilize that when we're tempted to get back? How are we different from everyone else in the world? And what does retaliation really accomplish? Let me ask you that this morning. What does it accomplish? A smug feeling of satisfaction that they got what they deserved. I gave them a test of their own medicine. Ha <laughs> Right? And how long does that last? How long does that feeling of satisfaction last? And more importantly for us this morning, what does it accomplish eternally? Does the name Mary Slessor ring any bells in this room? That's a name from many, many, many years back. But I'll never forget it because when our kids were little, we used to read all kinds of stories at night before they'd go to bed. And some of those stories were missionary stories. That was back when missionary biographies were in print. And there were actually a lot of them available. And many of them were bestsellers among believers. You don't hear much about them anymore. But Mary Slessor in 1876 was a single lady. She was Scottish. She felt convicted by God to go to a place at that time that was called Caliber on the west coast of Africa, all by herself. And she remained there all by herself for the next 40 years of her life, solely because she felt that God was telling her to go there and to win people to Christ. These were natives that had never seen a white woman before. But what intrigued me in the story, and sometimes, you know, that happens. You read a story, and there's all these big things that happen, but for some reason, you just retain this, this image of, of one thing that went on. And I'll never forget when I was reading to the kids, there were all of these little kids that would flock around her, dozens and dozens of kids. And they had these, these things that they would play with. They had these big, sharp rocks that they would tie with rope, and then they would swing them around. And so from the moment Mary came into the village, these little kids began to taunt her every day, all day long, and they would swing these strings around and see how close they could get to her head without hitting her. Now, what would you and I do if that happened today? I don't think we would put up with it for very long, would we? Mary put up with it. Day after day, week after week, with no reaction, except to continue to love these people in the name of Christ, to continue to reach out to these little kids, many of them orphan kids. And the thing was, she never retaliated, and every one of those children, there were dozens and dozens of them, ended up coming to know Christ. So let me ask you again, and I'm asking myself in the process, because we are just fed this so much to think otherwise is just otherworldly for us. What does retaliation accomplish for the kingdom of God? 
what does enduring it patiently accomplish? For many of us, we don't know. Because we're not used to even facing that kind of a challenge. Because our natural immediate response is, to, is toward retaliation. Now, obviously, and I don't think I need to clarify this, but I'll say it just to go on record. We're not talking about harmful abuse. We're not talking about something that needs to be dealt with legally or that needs to be dealt with to get out of an unsafe, harmful, violent situation. Obviously, that's not what's being referred to here. These little kids were mocking her because she was a Christian. They didn't know what a Christian was, but she was weird, and they wanted her out of, her, out of their village. There may be people that if you truly live your life for Christ, they think you're weird, and they want you out of their village, whether that be your workplace, the schoolroom, your neighborhood, wherever it is. How are you going to react How are we taking this charge to follow in his steps in 2024? Will we avoid persecution? Now, that's an easy thing to rationalize, right? We can kind of process that through our minds and say, no, I'm living for Christ and, you know, I'm just not persecuted. I mean, it's just not happening. I mean, we live in a free country that respects Christianity. Oh, wait a minute. Does it? If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. It's a guarantee. Jesus said we're not above him. If they persecuted him, and he was sinless... They're going to persecute us as well. How can we follow his steps? Remember that phrase, follow his steps in 2024. I put that out as a challenge for myself. I put that out as a challenge for each one of you. Not avoidance, not retaliation but using Christ as our example. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the clarity of your word. It's difficult. It's hard. But Lord God, I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit and the conviction from your word that you would give us the discernment that we need as we enter into a new year, 2024 to live our lives boldly and without compromise for Jesus Christ, that we might see some come to know him. We entrust ourselves to you on his behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.